Well, I thought if dispensationalism didn't excite you enough last time, we'd talk about the law, the Old Testament law this time, all right? Um, you think, well, you know, Pastor, if you want to be appreciated, you probably shouldn't turn to the book of Leviticus. Uh, we'll only be there a little bit, I promise. Um, but this is actually, when you consider how much of the Bible contains the Old Testament law, and how much it's referenced in the Bible, and how much it actually is tied into the story of the gospel and Jesus Christ's ministry on this earth, it's really important to understand this clearly. And let me give you the, the question that was asked to kind of narrow down. This is a big topic, so let's narrow it down a little, a little bit. The question says this, why did God require things like ceremonial and dietary regulations? I know that we're not under the law in the New Covenant, but why was the law instituted in the first place? That's a great question. Oftentimes, when we think about the Old Testament law, we think of it primarily in terms of how it doesn't apply to us or what it doesn't do, right? It doesn't save us. We know that. We know that we're not under the Old Testament law, and that's usually how we think about it. But when we ask the question, well, why was it there? It, what was its purpose, especially when you think of things like unclean foods and, 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 and these, these very minute and specific regulations that, that God detailed in his law, what was the purpose of these things? How should we view the Old Testament law? And so we're going to ask the question, is there a why in Scripture? Does the Scripture tell us why God gave the nation of Israel these laws? The short answer, of course, is Yes, there's a why. The scripture gives us plenty of reasons for that, but before we jump into that, let's make sure we understand the law. When we talk about the law, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. If you read your Old Testament, uh, Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. They are brought to Mount Sinai, and there God gives to his nation of Israel, his laws, and they enter into a covenant with each other, God and the nation of Israel. And this law is what binds that covenant. So that when we talk about the law, we're talking about the Old Testament law. Now when we consider the Old Testament law itself, there's a lot of different components to that. There are moral laws, how you to treat your neighbor, how to treat how relationships, things like that. But there's also things that, uh, that are like ceremonial things, ceremonial cleanliness, regulations in the temple, foods, unclean foods and clean foods. But uh, the, the whole Testament law cannot be cleanly divided into different portions. Sometimes we like to do that. There's ceremonial, there's, there's moral and there's civic, all right? And, and there's these clean categories, and we as Christians should follow the moral law, but we don't have to follow the ceremonial law or the civil law. Perhaps you've, you've heard that before. But the problem with dividing it up into nice and clean little portions is that's actually really hard to do. The Bible describes the whole law as one indivisible entity. James 2 verse 10 says this, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, is guilty of all, all of it. Galatians 5.3 says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So Paul says, all right, you want to pick this law in the, Old in the Mosaic law? Well, if you pick one, you're obligated to, to, to follow all of it. 
So this is an indivisible unity. Thirdly, the consequences and the blessings are, are part of the package of the law. That if you accept the law, you accept the consequences. Galatians 3.10 says, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So if you adopt the Mosaic law, you also have to adopt the blessings and the cursings that come with it. So if we have a clear picture of the law, all of the regulations given to Israel by Moses, sacrifices, dietary laws, moral commands, ceremonial cleanliness, let's ask the question, why did God do it? What is the purpose? Because there's some obscure and some strange laws. How many of you, be honest, have skipped the book of Leviticus in your Bible reading? <laughs> All right. How many of you have been reading through regulations on skin diseases and think, you know what? I'm going to pass on this for now. All right? There's a lot of things in the law that you think, why is this here? Right? You, 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 you get up in the morning, you have your cup of coffee, you sit down, you're ready to be encouraged by the word of God, and it's talking about leprosy and oozing skin. That doesn't really bless you in the morning. Okay? That's not something that just really gives you what you need for the day. Unless you have a skin disease, then maybe there's some instruction there. Why do we have the law? Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here's one prep, and we're going to be hopping around a lot tonight. So get ready. If you read on your Bible on your phone, this is when this will, this will come in handy. All right. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. Here we see a passage where Moses tells the people of Israel a very clear why for the law. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. When your sons ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that our Lord, our God, has commanded you? There it is. There's the question. What's the meaning of all these testimonies and statutes and rules? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, and he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to, his, to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all of these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So there is a clear answer. Your son asks, what's the purpose of all of these laws and regulations? The prescribed answer that the people were to give to their children was God delivered us, God rescued us, God entered into a covenant to us, and he gave us these laws for our good, that he could preserve us and protect us, and these are our righteousness, and if we follow these commandments, we, are, that we will be following the Lord. 
And so this is a good law, right? Even the skin diseases stuff, that's good. That is part of God's good law. Now, what was the purpose of it? We're going to go through several examples or reasons for why God gave the law. The first one would be this, that God's law was basically Israel's constitution. Last time we talked about dispensationalism and how there's different eras throughout uh, history where God interacts with his people in, in, in different ways, and, and there's progressive revelation, and with each stage he reveals more, and there's new accountability between God and man. And in this particular dispensation, God gave the law because he was creating for himself a people, a nation. And when you're creating a nation, you need a constitution. You need laws. So we think, why so detailed? Why so stringent? Why so specific? Well, have you ever tried to read the laws on the books in our state or our country? They're very specific, aren't they? They're very rigorous. And so we have to keep in mind that the Mosaic Law was a constitution written by God to govern his people, Israel. And it spoke to every part of their lives. It was very comprehensive. Why? Because he's giving it to a nation to govern the nation. This was a theocracy where all the nations had a human king that would rule over them. Israel was unique in that they were ruled by a deity. They were ruled by the deity. They were ruled by God who gave his holy commandments to his people. And as the constitution for the nation of Israel, it did a couple things. It reflected God's holiness. You see, this is a big theme, especially in the book of Leviticus, that he gives this the reason for many of his laws that he would be upheld as holy. This constitution also distinguished them from the pagan nations. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8, says this, And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So the law was, set, was meant to be this contrast, this clear sign. What other nation has this? What other nation has a constitution, a set of laws that is so perfect and so good and righteous? And many of the rules were simply, the pagan nations do it this way, so don't do it that way. That was, a lot of the, that was some, of, some of the laws. For example, the pagans round the corners of their beards. So don't round the corners of your beards. All right? I'm seeing some rounded corners here. <laughs> need to read your Bible. But many of these, the, why do they have this? Well, since the nation of Israel was a very visible and distinct nation, God instituted visible ways to distinguish them from the nations around them. And so God's law distinguished them from pagans, pagan nations. And then as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20, it was for the good of the people. This was a good law. Now one quick note. What about all the clean and unclean foods and ceremonial cleanliness? What's the purpose for these things? Have you ever wondered why are certain animals clean and others unclean? And then later on they're declared clean? Well, guess what? We're not really given a clear answer about why some animals were clean and unclean or the different foods or laws or dietary restrictions. Some of the laws with cleanliness just had to do with personal hygiene. Like things like skin diseases or mold in your house 
things like that. For other ceremonial laws, it highlighted the holiness of God and man's sin. Turn over to Leviticus chapter 10. Here we're going to see a ceremonial law and how that ceremonial law was meant to uphold the holiness of God. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now, stop right there for a moment. Was the things, whatever it was, the incense that they put on that altar, was that substance in itself an immoral, wrong substance? No, it wasn't. Why was it wrong? Because God commanded them not to do it that way. And they did it anyway. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So God says, here's some ceremonial laws, here's some ceremonial cleanliness laws, and you must follow these. Why? Because I must be upheld as holy in the eyes of the people. While there wasn't something inherently sinful in the substance of the fire itself, it was sinful because it was unauthorized. That Nadab and Abihu chose to ignore God's commands and therefore did not glorify God before Israel. We see later in verse 10, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. Now, it's important to note that ceremonial cleanliness was never meant to be the same as spiritual cleanliness. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9 verses 9 through 10, says this, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. From the very beginning, all these ceremonial cleanliness laws, food and drink and various washings, they were regulations for the body and they were there until the time of reformation. We see this later on in verses 13 through 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? From the very beginning, all of the sacrifices, the sprinkling of defiled persons, they sanctified the flesh. They were ceremonial cleanliness. It was never meant to be spiritual Cleanness. Ceremonial cleanness of the flesh pointed to our greater need of our spiritual cleansing from God. It's important to know as we talk about the law that salvation has always been by grace. The Old Testament saint was justified by faith, just like the New Testament saint. But for the Old Testament saint, following God and obedience to him included following the revealed revelation that was given to him at the time, which included the Old Testament law. But don't think for a moment that an Old Testament saint was saved through the law. It was never meant to do that. And so when we look at the Old Testament law, we must view it through the lens of the dispensation in which it was given, that God was dealing with a nation as its ruler 
with, of his own possession in which he got to set the rules, the laws, and the expectations. And this is what it looked like. It was the nation of Israel's constitution. But there are far more eternal purposes for the Old Testament law. Purposes that connect to us. While there was a national dimension to it, this is God's nation and how they were to conduct themselves and they, how, and they were to be blessed if they kept it, there's also a universal dimension that God has a purpose for the law far beyond the regulations for his nation of Israel. And we see in Scripture several purposes that God had for the law from the very beginning of its founding. The law brings the knowledge of sin. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Why did God give the Old Testament law? Well, while the law was good and holy, given by God itself, the ability to perfectly obey it was not given. In other words, the supernatural ability to follow God perfectly was not included as a bonus in the giving of the law. And so, when you have a law written by a holy God given to an unholy people, what does it do? It increases your awareness and your conviction of sin. Romans chapter 3, look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law brings a knowledge of sin. We see Paul later describe this in Romans 7. Turn to Romans 7. Romans chapter 7. Well, if, if the law brings the knowledge of sin, Paul asks this question, is the law sin? Is the law evil? Well, look in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, God forbid. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life now, when you read in the Old Testament, and you read in Leviticus, what does it say? Those who do these things shall live by them. It promised life. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin 
and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. The law brings the knowledge of sin. We know what this is kind of like, right? From a young age. What really makes us want to disobey a rule when our parents give us a rule, right? Don't touch that. Hmm. Now I kind of want to touch it, right? We, we, the, the presence of law, our sinful nature seizes opportunity through that commandment and sin comes alive. He gives the example. I would not know what coveting if the, is all about if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment and produces all kinds of covetousness. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, says the same idea. Why then the law? There's the question. Why do we have the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. Later on in verse 22, it says this, The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. If you read Galatians chapter 3, this is what you find. That there was the promise to Abraham. And then after the promise came the law. And that law was put in place because of sin to point uh, to us our own sinfulness. And then ultimately, the promised offspring would come and fulfill the law. And so we would see our need for sin and run to Christ for faith, in faith. So God brought the law to man because of their sinfulness and in order to show them that they were Sinful. Sin was shown to be sin. So why did God create the Old Testament law? The law brings the knowledge of sin. We are without excuse. And then one step further, the law renders us hopeless under sin. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Not only does the law show us how hopeless or how sinful we are, brings to us the knowledge of sin, But the law shows us just how hopelessly sinful we are. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, who's that one man? Adam. Many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, who's that one man? Jesus. The many will be made righteous. Now the law came in, why? To increase the trespass. So death came through sin and sin came through Adam. And all are under sin. And then later on comes the law. Why did the law come into the picture? To increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We saw in Romans chapter 7, verse 19, that through the commandment, it might become sinful beyond measure. We read also in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be accountable to God. 
So the law was never designed to be a path to salvation. It was designed to show that it was not the path to salvation. Then that, when measured against God's holy law, man realizes the depth and the depravity of his own heart and cries out to God by faith. And that's why it's so ridiculous for us to look to the law, to works, to earn God's favor. Because it was never God's design or intent for the law. We think, oh, the law, well, you know what? I think I could keep that pretty well. I think I can, I can think I can impress God. And God looks at that and says, that's not what the law was for. It was not so that you could impress me. It was so that you could see how much you need me. He designed the law to prove your need for salvation. And when we look at the law, we see how woefully short we come. And this applies to the Old Testament saints as well. The, the, the Israelites, even those who were under the Old Testament law, it had this purpose for them too. They were under a good and moral law that was given for their good. But built into that law was also a sacrificial system. Why have a sacrificial system? Because the moral demands necessitated a system to deal with the inevitable violation of those demands. Why have burnt offerings? Why have sacrifices? Because when instituting the law, God knew this law is not meant to earn their righteousness. And they won't be able to do it. And so, the Old Testament Jew, trying to, get, trying to keep the law, depended on the fact that when he came short, there was a substitute provided for him. And God told, in the law, when you sin, what are you to do? You are to take a lamb, and you are to place your hand on the head of that lamb. And then the high priest would sacrifice that lamb for your sins. From the very beginning, what was the message to Israel? Here is God's holy standard. You cannot keep it. And in order to have a relationship with God, you must depend on a substitute sacrifice shedding its blood for you. The law lamp amplified the sense of our own sin. We're hopeless under the law. We, uh, knowledge of sin comes through the law, but then ultimately and most glori gloriously, the law points to Jesus. And there's two ways that the law does this. You can turn to Galatians chapter 3 again. Galatians chapter 3. The first way that the law points us to Jesus, we read in Galatians chapter 3, that it guarded us until his coming. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? In other words, there's promises, these unconditional promises made through Abraham that this offspring would come. And then the law comes. Is it contrary to the promises? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So there is not a law given that was meant to give life. Because if it were, righteousness would be by works. 
But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who, are, who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian or our school teacher until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. And so the law served as an instructor, as a steward, so that we might not place, not so that we may place our hope in the law, but so that our hope is directed to the object of the promises, Jesus Christ. In other words, the law had a temporary role that was put in place until its fulfillment arrived. And so the law also points to Jesus by, whoops, there we go, by finding its fulfillment in him. You're in Galatians chapter 3. Look back in Galatians chapter 2. Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so as we are united to Christ's death and resurrection, and therefore united to his active obedience and fulfillment of the law and the crucifixion, we fulfill the law's demands through him. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 4 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here's what Christ did. There's two parts of the law. We saw this at the beginning. There are the demands, the righteous demands that we must follow. And then there are the curses. There are the consequences for not following. And guess what Christ did? He came and he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And at the same time, he became the curse for breaking the law. The law says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Christ took on not only the fulfillment of its demands, but took on the consequences that we deserve. And so the law could not, weakened by the flesh, give us life. We could not fulfill the law because of the weakness of our sinful flesh. And so Jesus comes in the likeness of sinful flesh to fulfill the law that we could not fulfill. And as we walk in faith, according to the Spirit, that law is fulfilled in us. Romans chapter 10, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What did Jesus do on the cross? Whoever, Galatians says, whoever tries to live by the law is under a curse. Because the moment you try to live by the law, guess what? You're cursed because you've already failed. 
And so Christ comes, and listen to Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its what? Its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities by, uh, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ took the curse of the law that you deserve by breaking the law, and he nailed that to the cross. He set it aside. But then look at the next verse. Therefore, since Christ did that, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to the festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What's he referring to there? The Old Testament ceremonial laws, the feast days, the dietary restrictions. Don't let anyone pass judgment on, on you regarding the Mosaic law. Why? Because these, he continues, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So this Old Testament law was set in place. Christ comes. He fulfills the law. And by fulfilling the law, he retires the law. Its function has been completed. The law was set up for a specific purpose. It was to safeguard us until the coming Messiah. It was to point to the Messiah. In the meantime, it was serving as this constitution, this law for the nation of Israel. And when Christ came, he fulfilled it. He took on the curse that we deserve. And then it was set aside. Its purpose has been completed. What the Old Testament law foreshadowed, Christ fulfilled when he nailed the record of debt against us to his cross. So how should we as Christians read the law? Do we have to sit there and try to figure out, okay, which laws apply to me, which ones don't? Do I have to, can I wear mixed, mixed fabric clothing, right? Can I, can I round the corners of my beard? Right? Is, that, is, that, is that something permissible? Remember, the law is an indivisible whole. It is a complete package that God gave to Israel, and Christ fulfilled the law in its entirety, as we see in Colossians, including things like food and drink and festival, new moon, and even Sabbath, which is one of the Ten Commandments. And so, the Old Testament law is not binding on the New Testament Christian. It has served its purpose. It has been set aside. We are living by faith. And so we read it as one who has been freed from the law. We're not under the Old Testament law. We're not under a segment of the Old Testament law. It has been fulfilled in Christ in its, in, its, in its entirety. It has been retired. Its function and purpose have now been met. So what do we do? Do we just ignore the Old Testament and say, well, there's a command to love your neighbor, and I'm not under the law, so I guess I don't have to love my neighbor. Is that how we read the Old Testament? No, of course not. Because remember, we said that the law reflects the holiness of God. So as we read the law, one thing we need to do is we need to see how does this reveal God's character. And then secondly, one thing we do is we see, do we see commands in the Old Testament 
continuing forward under Christ and the church. We do. And that's why we see in, in a passage like 1 Corinthians 9.21, where Paul says to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, referring to the law of Moses, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So Christ came, and he set some of the Old Testament principles aside. He declared all foods clean. He said that, this man, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. But yet, because the law is written by a holy God, there are principles and there are characteristics of a holy God that are going to continue and persist and be binding on every Christian as we seek to follow that same holy God. But as a package, the Old Testament law, we are not under the law, we are under grace. And so we observe how the law reflects God's holiness and seriousness. Like, how do I read the book of Leviticus? Read through Leviticus and see how it highlights the holiness of God. See how it shows the necessity of a sacrifice for your sins. See how Christ fulfills it. See how these rules point to the Savior. And as you read it, rejoice that Christ has come and he's taken those legal demands that you are guilty of and he has nailed them to the cross. And as you walk in faith to him and as the Spirit bears his fruit in your life, and even as we saw in Mark, that loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself hangs all the commandments and the entire law. As we follow Christ through his Spirit and we embrace his death and his resurrection for us, he fulfills the law through us. And we can have peace with God. And so when we see the whole picture, Old Testament, New Testament, we see God's gracious plan. There is great purpose for reading the law. And there's a great fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you gave us a law that shows us how sinful we are. You gave us a law to show us how much we need you. How much we can't do it in our own flesh. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet embraced Christ, who is still trying to earn your favor through their works, Lord, help them see that your holy law leaves them without excuse. That none of us can reach it. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. And as they consider their inability to follow your law, that you might point them to your Son, who fulfilled the law for them, that their record of debt can be nailed to the cross, and they can walk in newness of life. Help us as Christians not to fall back into the old way, but to walk in the Spirit. In your son's